Welcome to the Faster Podcast by Flow Cycling, the podcast where we talk about anything and everything that makes you faster on your bike. This is Season 1, Episode 8, and today we have nutrition expert Dr. Stacy Sims joining us on the show. Stacy is a former nutrition scientist for Team Radio Shack and now helps sports nutrition companies like Noon develop their supplement formulas. During this episode, Dr. Sims discusses how to achieve a healthy weight, her recommended diet, how to eat on and off the bike, and much more. Listen to this interview to take your nutrition to the next level and become a faster cyclist. Hey, this is Chris with Flow. When we're not producing this podcast, our team at Flow is designing some of the fastest carbon fiber bicycle wheels in the world. As a thank you for being a listener of our podcast, Faster by Flow, we wanted to offer you 20% off your next purchase of wheels at flowcycling.com. Head over to our website and pick up a set of wheels to make you faster at your next race or ride. Simply use coupon code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, in all uppercase letters when checking out to get 20% off your order. Thanks again for listening to Faster. We hope you enjoy the show. Stacy, thank you for joining us on the show today. How are you doing? I'm all right. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. So you're joining us from New Zealand. How is life on the other side of the world? Well, winter's coming, but we're still sea swimming, so I can't complain too much. <laughs> Are you a Game of Thrones fan? No. Oh, you said winter is coming. That's a big theme in the Game of Thrones. So uh, I was just wondering if, if you were maybe a Game of Thrones fan. No, um, I always laugh because like April, everyone's posting all these spring pictures. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> Yeah. Funny, funny. So we met uh, We met years ago when I was being coached by Matt Dixon. And at the time, I was experimenting with several fad diets, the primal diet being one of those in an attempt to try and improve my performance. And as a result, I remember going to get some blood work done at the doctor. And for the first time in my life, my, my levels were bad. And I knew I needed to get back on track. So I had a discussion with Matt and he told me that there was one person in the world to talk to and that was Stacey Sims. And after talking with you, gosh, I think it was six or seven years ago now, you gave me some really straightforward, great nutrition advice and my blood work was perfect and back on track. So when I thought of putting a nutrition section on, you know, in this show, there was really only one person I wanted on the show and that was, that was you. So thank you. Oh, we were very honored to have you on here. And um, we've got quite a few questions to, to talk about today. So I just wanted to get right into them. And let's just start with some general nutrition questions. So with a, with a general fitness or weight loss exercise program, it said that your diet is responsible for 70 or 80% of your progress, meaning if you can work out really, really hard, but if you eat poorly, you won't see the results. Um, when it comes to our performance in endurance sports like cycling, how much of an effect does nutrition have on our overall performance? Oh, everything. I mean, where do I start? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, the old adage of you can't out-exercise a bad diet definitely holds true for endurance athletes. Um, and there's lots more research coming out about the gut microbiome. We hear all this thing about probiotics and prebiotics. And a lot of times athletes are like, oh, I eat well. But when you actually look at the data on the gut microbiome of endurance athletes in particular, those who have a training diet that's relatively high in sugar, which most people do, you know, you have something before you go training, you have all this high hits of sugar from drinks and, you know, could even be not necessarily engineered nutrition, but whatever you're having on the bike, and then your post-recovery stuff, all of that perpetuates the growth of bacteria that feeds on simple sugars. So when you start looking at the gut microbiome of athletes who are not necessarily paying attention to what they're eating before, during, and after, their gut microbiome matches that of a sedentary obese individual. So it's not that exercise is protective, diet is everywhere. And the reason why I say that is when you're starting to get this chronic inflammation and fatigue and you might have injury propensity and low immune system, it's not necessarily the training that you're doing, it's because your nutrition is not allowing your body to recover properly from the gut outwards. Huh. Wow. 
Okay. So that really leads into my next question. So obviously getting a, you know, a proper diet plan is going to help us lose weight if we need to, but you mentioned some of them, but what are some of the other benefits that we can see as a cyclist from adopting a, a proper nutrition plan? Like recovery seems to be one of them for sure. Yeah. And then there's this little talked about in the male endurance scope, but, um, definitely in the female and it is very prevalent, especially in male cyclists, what we call low energy availability. And this is where you end up with a calorie restriction that may or may not be on purpose. And uh, it drops your resting metabolic rate. And people are always like, oh, I need to lose weight and I need to lose weight. I'm really careful of what I'm eating. So they cut back calories more, which dampens or drops their resting metabolic rate even further. And so they stagnate. And the mindset that's out there is calories in, calories out. So they're like, I got to restrict calories. I'm going to eat super clean. I'm just going to eat, you know, all in the California bubble idea of everything that's local, local, sustainable. I know where it comes from. You know, it's all organic. And it, it will impact your performance because you're not addressing the root cause where you need this baseline of really good food to keep your endocrine system going to keep your muscle protein synthesis going, to keep your gut happy, and then you add performance on top. So as I said, it's very prevalent in female athletes. I mean, I work with professional cyclists and like, oh, I need to lose weight and they're in season. And so they're trying to restrict calories on recovery days. It's like, no, that's the absolute worst thing you can do because you're burning so much. Your body is rebounding and backlashing and you need to eat more. Okay. And then we work with men. And the same thing comes up, you're like, you need to eat more. But then it comes down to what does more look like? And what does that mean? It's not more, quote, treat food. It's more that, as I tell my kid, growing food. We need okay. growing food. Okay. So you said that the typical California diet, the eating organic and everything's grown locally, you said that doesn't work. Why does that not work and what does work? Um, it's not that, I mean, it's very much a mindset and a bubble of, I have to eat clean. I have to eat, you know, in that, that California idea of, of where does it come from? Local, sustainable. All of it is fantastic from an environmental standpoint. But if you're looking at nutrition density, per se, if you're going for a really high, um, intake of fruit and veg, um, and then a little bit of lean meat and you have the restriction now with everyone going, Oh, I don't want grains or maybe I'll have some ancient grains. Again, it comes down to the nutrition density aspect. You don't want to fill up so much on fiber because, again, you're not addressing that baseline calorie need. So right. it, it's like going, yeah, that's a really good idea from a general health population standpoint. But as an elite endurance athlete or even an upcoming um, endurance athlete, you have to look at what your body actually needs. So if you're reaching for like your kale smoothie after a workout because you're like, hey, yeah, this has all my fruits and veg. It doesn't have a lot of protein. It fills you up and you're not maximizing your recovery. Oh, wow. Interesting. Interesting. Very let's, cool. Let's talk about um, healthy weight for a minute. Everybody that or most people you seem to talk to are, are s s wanting to get to this ideal weight that they sort of have in their head. Um, sometimes it's their high school weight. Sometimes it's something that, uh, you know, they, they kind of seem to pull out of thin air. Um, if we look at healthy weight, just healthy weight by itself is sort of unique because there are different types, there are different body types. I mean, you can, you can break it down into endomorphic, ectomorphic and, and mesomorphic. Um, and then, you know, there's the different type of athletes. So, you know, primarily the, you know, cyclists and triathletes are endurance type athletes. So what is a healthy body weight taking into consideration the different body types, um, age and, and, you know, male and female, what's a, how do we know what is safe? Um, so, I mean, it's very interesting when I think about weight and weight on the scale, like we have the avail availability of doing DEXAs. So we're looking specific at body composition and for a healthy weight, I don't ever tell someone to say, well, you're racing at, at 60 kilos and you need to be 58 kilos right? Um, because we don't know where that two kilo is going to come from. Is it from losing stored carbohydrate? Is it from being dehydrated? So if you have the opportunity to actually get body composition done, 
then you have more of an awareness factor of where you are in the scope of being able to move body mass. Okay. Um, yeah. So it, it really comes down to body composition, not weight on scale. And so do you have any general rules for body composition uh, for, for men and women? Like a, you know, if you are a a certain size in height, uh, can we look at pounds per inches? Can we look at... Is, is there anything you can go f- go for for like a healthy weight? Um, when we go through body composition for for women who are are training and racing but not the elite, you don't want to drop below fifteen to sixteen percent because when you start getting below that fifteen or sixteen percent, then you'll start running into endocrine problems um, and menstrual cycle dysfunction. For men, around the ten to eight percent is the cutoff. Um, and the body fat can be intramuscular fat. It doesn't necessarily have to be, um, you know, under the skin, but mm-hmm. I see a lot of, and because I sit in the high performance center and I work with endurance athletes and I work with rugby and I work with CrossFit and it's endemic across all sports where in particular women are coming in going, I need to lose a little bit more belly fat. And men are saying, I need to lose a little bit more belly fat. And if you have that excess belly fat, then you have room to mobilize and move. And most right. often, it's because you're not eating enough. Oh, okay. And so, so when you and you, when you say you know 15 to 16 and 8 to 10, that's talking about body fat percentage, right, from the composition scale. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Um, if we are going to get down to a good body composition, if we're if we're moving towards that, what is the best way for us to do that in a, in a safe way? Uh, fuel for your activity. The best way to change your body composition is to fuel for the exercise stress and recover from it. The whole idea of going out training is to break the body down, to give it that stress stimulus so that it understands it, overcomes it, and gets fitter. If you're going out on no food and you're trying to do fasted training or you're delaying your recovery food because of you know, you have to get to work or you're not hungry or some reason, then you're in this catabolic state all the time. And the repercussions of being in the catabolic state is decreased lean mass, increased body fat. So the most simple thing that you can do is actually fuel for your training. It's interesting you say that. It's something that I've heard, you know, a number of times and if you are not eating enough, what I've heard is that the body goes into a state when you're in that catabolic state of, I need to survive. And so what it does is it stores fat uh, for, you know, the drought of food. Is that what you mean by catabolic state? Is that why you see people that come in that want to lose, you know, more belly fat, as you say, and eating more is sort of the the prescription for that? Yeah, yeah. And because in a catabolic state, you have elevated cortisol. And in the mm-hmm. general population, everyone knows that cortisol is the also known as the belly fat hormone. Okay. So every time you go training, you release more cortisol as well. And if you never dampen it down by taking food in, you're going to be in this elevated stress state. And your body's response to stress is putting on body fat and using mm-hmm. lean mass to fuel things because it's an accessible means of getting amino acids and carbohydrates. Okay. Very cool. If we are changing our body composition and we're dropping weight uh, and changing that body composition, what are some signs that we've potentially gone a bit too far? Power to weight ratio, really. Like you know what your power is and your functional threshold power. And it's very interesting to see people like get to this particular weight and they're like, yeah, I'm pushing three to four or three and a half to four watts per kilo. Um, for my FTP, and this is mainly women. Men are a little bit higher. And then they are motivated to lose a little bit more weight, and then all of a sudden it drops. And they're like, why oh. can't I push the watts? So, huh. you know, from a performance aspect, it's like you might be a little bit heavier, and you can push higher watts, and that power-to-weight ratio is really the designing factor. Very cool. Are there any fads or tricks that uh, are sort of commonplace in in society uh, to get us to lose or change our body composition quickly that you would tell us to definitely avoid? 
Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> All of them? <laughs> That's yeah. a loaded question, right? <laughs> That's a loaded question. <laughs> well, I'll give you some background on why I'm like, oh. Um, so I belong to several um, international nutrition groups. And, you know, you have your Facebook pages and you have your email listservs. And I put a post up saying, we know scientifically the recommendations for carbohydrate. And we know scientifically the recommendations for protein. Yep. But are there any for fat? And people came back with all these anecdotal things on how you prescribe fat per kilogram of body weight, but nothing was scientific. And right. out of like, I don't know, maybe 200 responses, not one of them had any science behind it. That's how confused even the professionals are. Wow. So it's this marketing thing, right? So marketing is so much stronger than science because science I mean, when you're a scientist, you're like, yeah, that's really cool. But for the general population, like, whatever, science, ah, geeky. I just want the, the really zinger. So you'll have these, take this to lose X amount of pounds in a week. Or yeah. you know, if you're going for beet juice, let's go with beet elite for this vasodilation response. But when you look at the science, it's like, well, if you eat foods that have a lot of nitrate in it, it's actually a better ergogenic aid than if you were to take an acute hit of this processed beaches. So there's so many different trends and things out there. If you name one, then I'll be able to tell you the science behind it and what the marketing is. Yeah. What about something wild. like um, intermittent fasting? Oh, yeah. Intermittent fasting. So the thing about <laughs> intermittent fasting is the way that our lifestyles have evolved is people have food accessible all the time. And so you'll have like this midnight snack aspect or, you know, you're eating right before bed. But if you go back and go, well, you know, if I have dinner and I eat well throughout the day and then I don't really have any food because I'm not hungry after about 7.30 and then I get up at 6, you're effectively fasting. Right. You have that overnight period where your body resets. When you think about the trends of intermittent fasting, where you have these days where you're just drinking and then you have days where you're just eating, in the obese population where they've done the research, it does work for obese populations to give them sugar control and help them lose weight because they have so much to draw from. When you look at intermittent fasting in someone who's lean and active, it really screws up your endocrine system and screws up your metabolic pathway, leading it wow. back down to reducing your resting metabolic rate so that your body gets this reset to a lower to a letter, lower set point and it's more of a negative feedback aspect. And for women, it's a lot worse because we have a baseline amount of carbohydrate and fuel that we need to just keep menstrual cycle function in endocrine and thyroid. If we drop too far below that, the response is to get tired, fat, and slow. Huh. And I mean, I have people come in, they're like, well, my husband's doing this intermittent fasting or my boyfriend's doing this intermittent fasting and he's getting lean and fit and strong and I'm doing it and look at me. I'm slow, I'm fat, I'm putting weight on, I don't understand. It's like, <laughs> Well, that's because it does not work for women. And wow. it's not that great for men either. So when we think about fasting, let's just go back to the normal eating patterns and not eat right before bed and then not eat again until breakfast. Okay. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Okay. All right. Uh, let's get a little bit into specific diets. Um, and there's there's a ton of different diets on the market, but some of the most popular ones that we hear just with our customers and things like that is you, there's a big push on diets that contain meat and diets that do not contain meat. So let's not get specific, but let's just try and separate diets uh, in those two categories to start with. So let's ask a very direct question about that. Can cyclists find the same or similar nutritional success? So the same performance results with diets that contain meat and diets that are purely plant-based? Um. So it comes down to muscle protein synthesis and what signals muscle protein synthesis. And it has to do with leucine. Um, and in some regards, some of the other essential amino acids. But when we think specifically about leucine, you need a certain amount in the muscle to turn on an enzyme to create this muscle protein synthesis. Okay. In a vegan diet, most of the, or I should say plant-based because... Vegan has such negative connotations now. In a plant-based <laughs> diet, 
um, for quick hits of protein, things that are on the market, the pea and the quinoa and the hemp and unfortunately soy, they don't have the leucine content that some of the more animal-based products have to signal this muscle protein synthesis. What I mean by that is it takes 50 grams of of, um, soy and 40 grams of rice protein to meet the bioavailability of 25 grams of whey. So it's a volume thing. Now, coming back to the initial question, can you have the same kind of performance aspect as being plant-based as meat-based? Yes, you can. You just have to be very cognizant of how you are fueling the body after an exercise stress to trigger that muscle protein synthesis. And it comes down to knowing how your body works and what foods are available. And there are new things coming on the market all the time. Um, I'm currently working on a project that's looking at marine peptides and seaweed because they have a very high leucine content. And it can be a, a really fantastic way of of creating a supplement that's not dairy based or plant or animal based. So huh. there are lots of different things out there, but it comes down to that trigger for muscle protein synthesis. Crazy. Okay, I've got got a few follow up questions on that, but one of them was, uh, why did you say unfortunately soy when you refer? Unfortunately soy, because there's such a press about using soy, 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 soy. And when I see it and it's being pushed so much in the female market in particular. It has such estrogenic properties, and women I've heard can. That. Yeah, and if a woman is estrogen dominant, then taking in even more um, estrogen-like compounds can create more problems than it's worth. Um, and women may not know that they're estrogen dominant, but it comes down to um, like PMS symptoms: Are you bloated? Are you, um, you know, having lots of problems sleeping? Temperature fluctuations, all of these are a sign of estrogen dominancy. Wow. Um, and the worst, I think, is the push for using soy for pre or for postmenopausal symptoms. And um, like the master's athletes, that's a very up and coming growth uh, market in particular. Yeah. Um, it's not a good source of protein, and the estrogen properties of soy do not mimic that of the ones that you're losing. So it's an it's a it's not a very good protein source or okay. protein food source. I've also heard that uh, soy in men uh, can affect the prostate. Is that something that you've you've heard of? Yeah, because it all comes down to like DHEA and the conversion of, of testosterone and the way estrogen affects some of that conversion. And again, if you're taking in these um, foods that have these estrogenic properties, then you're going to affect that conversion. Um, yeah. So it does. Huh. Crazy. Okay. You also said that plant-based athletes, the, one of the biggest problems they have is getting the leucine when they need it after a workout. What are some tips that you can give plant-based athletes so that they can get that properly? Um, So being very cognizant of what kind of uh, proteins you're using. Like if you're looking for a quick hit of like a protein recovery shake or something like that, then you're looking at the combination of using pea, hemp, and, um, and some quinoa. So you're getting more of that leucine content up. Um, eating real food too. It's like if you are looking at actual protein content, then you can look and see what kind of plant-based foods have a higher leucine content and mix them up um, to get that bioavailability. Okay. Are are there any other things that uh, plant-based athletes should consider or monitor when they're on that type of diet? I've heard of vitamin B deficiency is one of those. Is there anything else that they should look out for? And vitamin D as well, but that's across the board. Everyone should be looking at vitamin D. (laughs) Okay. Um, All right. Yeah. Um, And there is that misnomer that um, plant-based athletes can have a higher incidence of iron deficiency. And it's a myth because uh, your body will learn to pull more iron out of the foods that you're eating. But the other factor is a, a diet that's high in plant-based foods also is a high anti-inflammatory diet. And if you can dampen inflammation at the level of the gut, then you will have less of a liver enzyme called hepcidin produced. And hepcidin, when it's upregulated, prevents the gut from absorbing iron. Okay. So there, 
they can actually absorb more from the foods that they're eating and it doesn't have to be heme iron. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, gosh, six or seven years ago now, when we when we first talked about nutrition, um, you had you sent me a, a food chart by Doctor Weil, who is known for producing the anti-inflammatory diet. And you mentioned that a plant-based diet can be anti-inflammatory. Do you still follow that type of principle? And if considering let's say we're not we're not um, stuck on having to have a plant-based diet. Do you still follow that wild type food pyramid? And if not, what do you suggest for athletes now? Um, yeah, I mean, I do because it, the concept of it is really good where you're eating, you're low on the food chain, you know where your lean proteins are coming from. The bulk of your diet is from a wide variety of different fruits and veggies. And it, it just makes sense across the board. It's not a magic bullet for anyone, but it falls in line with so many principles that are having the buzzword like being um, local and sustainable and having the least amount of environmental impact. Well, if you're knowing where your food's coming from and eating local and sustainable, then you have a low environmental impact. And that's all part of that whole schematic where you have a bulk of things coming from plant-based stuff, but you're also supplementing with really good, high-quality protein. If you are eating meat, then you know where your meat is coming from. You know how to implement it. If you're using dairy, then you're very conscious of the fact that you want organic and nothing that's been treated with hormones. Because the further we are away from the food system, the more we become disconnected. There's so many people who go to the supermarket and they see meat wrapped up in the cellophane and they don't actually connect the fact that that was once a cow down the five, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, that's that's for sure. So, do you you then would recommend for most athletes that eating meat is okay, yeah. uh, but eating the right meats is very important? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Um, I mentioned Dr. Weil. So, for those who don't know who he is, where can they find more information about his his eating system? Do you know? Um, he is based at the University of Arizona in the integrative medicine department, and he has a whole website and different links and stuff. Um, in conjunction with U of Arizona, Stanford puts on this uh, annual conference on integrative medicine and nutrition. Okay. So you can go to the Prevention Research Center webpage at Stanford, too, and find out more about him and some of the research that's come out across the board about anywhere from genetics to different types of um, nutritional plans and how to maximize health and performance. Okay, perfect. Very cool. Um, do you have any suggestions for athletes who may have a specific dietary issue like celiac disease or Crohn's disease? Um, yeah. So, like, if you're thinking about celiacs, the, the gluten-free market is a very interesting one because, I mean... There's this thing, you go into cafes now and they say low gluten. Well, what does that mean? If you're celiac, <laughs> you can't have any kind of gluten. And for people who aren't celiac, they don't really have to care. So for celiacs, there's such a really good wide variety of gluten-free products. The only caveat is don't go for the things that you used to not be able to eat. Don't go for the cakes and the cupcakes and the breads and things because they're so high in simple refined carbohydrates that it, it's kind of a back Yes. Huh. And then for Crohn's, because it's a bowel inflammation and IBS, this is something where you can really start, if you go to um, get gut microbiome checked, so you can see and manipulate some of the bacteria to help with that and to um, really include like turmeric and some of the other really good anti-inflammatory agents. Okay. And a lot of people with Crohn's will know what some of the triggers are. Low sleep, high stress, high processed foods. So it, you just kind of begin to understand these patterns and implement change to stop the symptoms or prevent it from becoming a major issue. Okay. Um, you, you said something there that was a bit interesting. You said unless you have celiac disease, celiac disease, you, sh you, you shouldn't worry about gluten. Right. So, right. unless you have celiac disease, you should be eating gluten or not worrying about it is what you're saying. You shouldn't worry about it. Like, people go, oh, I don't eat wheat. I don't eat gluten. I'm like, well, do you have celiacs? No, I just feel like I feel better on it. 
And when you look at the things that they've taken out, most of the time it's that highly processed stuff. They're taking out the pasta, they're taking out the bread, they're taking out um, anything that has you know, aspects of gluten. And most of the time when you think about the stuff that's high in gluten and you take it out, you're going to feel better because you've just taken out a lot of the highly processed, processed stuff foods. Yeah. and replaced it with things that are much better for you. Um, yeah. Huh. Oh, interesting. Okay. And the same with dairy. Like people are like, oh, I'm dairy intolerant. Okay. Well, I can see, are you lactose intolerant? Are you whey protein? The protein's intolerant? Are you casein intolerant? And when they can't tell you, you're like, well, you eliminated dairy, but what did you put in? What else did you eliminate? And so when you start getting into the nuts and bolts of how they've tweaked their diet, overall, the whole diet is a better one than what they were doing before they eliminated. So you can't have a cause effect. Uh, oh, that's, that's, that's key. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Um, with, with people on plant-based diets, they often lose the, uh, um, the bacteria in their stomachs to break down meat if they start to eat meat again. Is the same thing go for people who restrict gluten from their diet? Uh, so gluten is a protein that uh, you can develop antibodies against it, but, um, if you take gluten out and then put it back in, you're going to feel a little bit bloated to start. And people often don't want to because they feel that bloating. And it's just your body, re, I guess, understanding what enzymes need to be put out there to digest that protein. Okay. Awesome. That, that, that's, this gluten thing is such a, a big topic. And I thought that those are some very interesting questions and points that you've made. Um, there's a lot of stuff now going on with genetic Based diet. So you, you go get your genetics read at, you know, you spit on the, the tube, basically you rub the swab in your mouth and you get a genetic profile and a suggested diet. What do you think of that? I'm, I'm laughing. I'm like, are you looking at my office? Because I have a whole bunch of the DNA swabs. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not doing, I'm, it, it's more like my interest is in the epigenetics and looking at multicultural aspects of using genetics. Um, so like having a, what, what is it one in California where they have a delivery box based on your genetics? Yeah, uh, really? Toolbox Genomics. Yes. Yeah, uh, like we actually, they're going to be on the podcast very soon. So okay. I've been working with the people at UNLV and there is a PhD who is specializes in your genetics and your diet and your performance as an athlete. And uh, John and I have already submitted the test. We're just waiting for the results before we do the podcast. Yeah. So yep. it should be a cool episode. So there's not a lot of robust, solid evidence right now. There's nine SNPs that there are. So if they're looking at those particular nine SNPs, then you're good to go. Okay. But everything else is so arbitrary. And people take their genetic tests and go, sweet, I have this um, AC, uh, or I have this ACE that says that I need to do more aerobic, but I'm a sprinter. But they forget about the impact of the epigenetic aspect where you might have this genetic profile that tells you that you should do X, Y, Z. But if you're doing something else, it's not that you're like countering what your genetics say. It just means that maybe if you were to change, you would maximize things, but the performance potential people don't really know yet, right? From wow. a health perspective. Yeah. You can see like the sick genes and that has to do with, um, drug metabolism, the new study that came out about caffeine saying if you have the two alleles as a caffeine responder, you're going to do well on caffeine. If you have the two alleles that say that you don't respond to caffeine, then it's useless to use it. But if you have one of each, then you, caffeine is actually detrimental to performance. And there's a lot of robust data out on some of these smaller, like really well-studied sick genes and, and things that are in the health space. But when you start going outside of that, there's not enough robust data and there's no sex difference data out there either. So when you start applying it across the general population, this is where I start going, well, we need more research done. Awesome. That's One great. thing that I've heard of, and you kind of brought this up at the beginning of the, of the show, uh, you talked about the microbiology of the gut. Uh, and so I've sort of heard this contrasting thing where people, some people are looking at genetics and others are looking at the cultures in, in the gut, the bacteria in the gut. I've heard some things 
as far out there as people talking about fecal implants to improve mm-hmm. gut health. Yeah. Uh, just give us some of your thoughts on that. Uh, I find this very a very interesting topic. So let's hear what you have to say. Okay. So um, I'll, I'll tell you this case study that's been been running around a bit because um, it's very interesting. There was a woman in the UK who had a really bad C. difficile infection. So C. diff is a, a general bacteria in the gut. And when it, it leaks out, it can cause this major infection. And most of the time, it's really super strong antibiotics to get rid of it. And so you can completely wipe like that. Yeah. So you know what I mean. Oh, it's horrible. It's awful. And it <laughs> yeah. can keep coming back and you just can't get rid of it. So this woman was having these recurring courses of antibiotics and could not get rid of the C. diff. Um so they said, okay, well, one of the things that we can do is a fecal transplant, and this can help reinvigorate some of your own natural bacteria to fight the C. diff. And she was at her wits end. She's like, fine. So she had her daughter as a donor, and she, before so, she had- Hold on, just one sec. I, yeah. Can we just explain, because when I first heard this, it, it's one of those things I had to ask the question. When you say fecal transplant, transplant yeah. I just want to address what this means. That actually means taking- feces from one human and then implanting it into a host into to, the, yeah right into so, the colon of of the person that needs the new bacteria okay. now that oh. we've cleared that up continue your story yeah <laughs> okay. um so prior to her having this um fecal transplant she was relatively lean and fit and um never really had issues with her weight then she had a fecal transplant, and she put on 20 pounds, and no matter what she did, she could not get rid of it. What? So then they started going, okay, well, there's this connection because her daughter is obese. And so the donor was obese, and the bacteria that she got were the bacteria that promoted the craving of simple carbohydrates, not able to process protein very well. So the whole gut microbiome that she got implanted was one that would promote obesity. What? So she, now she had this, okay, I don't have C. diff anymore, but now I have this body I don't understand. And diet and exercise isn't working. So then there was a uh, a researcher who, out of the UK, I think Edinburgh, he went to Africa Um and he did his own gut microbiome test before he went, um, just, the, you know, your normal standard scientist, academic, whatever. And then he went to a tribe where there was really no Western influence. And he was anthropological or some reason why he had these connections. And he ate like they did. And he was there for a week and he came back and did a gut microbiome test again. And the diversity was massive. And the diversity of the gut bacteria that he now had were all the ones that promoted um, low inflammation, leanness, um, reducing chronic fatigue. So then he's like, okay, well, now I have this. I wonder if we were to put it into obese people, what would happen? So now he has clinical trials where he's looking at this diversity of gut microbiome and implanting it into obese people, and they're losing weight. And this is the thing. It's not only weight loss things that I've heard and researched about that that they're predicting they'll be able to cure with this. The list is enormous. Yeah. It's like, I mean, we're talking anxiety. We're talking like psychological things. We're talking- Depression. It's crazy. And so it's fascinating to me. I'm yeah. blown away. I, that's crazy. Yeah. So you, so there, you have you have body types. People who I've always been naturally lean my whole life. You're saying that my gut microbiome could be a big component of why I'm lean. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And um, AIS is actually taking this one step further and looking at the gut microbiome of their top athletes and looking at the diversity. And seeing who's missing what, and it's not happening yet, but they're looking at creating probiotics to- That's what I was going to say. Yeah, to use an ergogenic aid, because about four or five months ago, the American Physiological Society said, hey, we have this new organ, it's called the gut, and all the gut (laughs) bacteria, because there's such a connection between the brain and the gut. And some of the hormone responses and the bacteria can drive hormonal responses that can induce chronic fatigue. 
that can induce inflammation, can induce immune dysfunction. And so now when people are like, oh, should I take a probiotic? I'm like, not over-the-counter probiotic because there's only two strains in there. And right. there's a sex difference in those strains. And depending on what you get, as a woman, you might end up with chronic fatigue. And with a man, you might end up with weight gain. I, so okay, get your I, probiotics I, from food. I, I think this qualifies as officially the most interesting thing I've heard on this podcast so far. So, <laughs> nice. wow. Thank you. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's get back into meals in general. Uh, we're yeah. starting to talk about food. So, let's classify eating uh, in two different categories. And the first is going to be workout-focused eating. So, let's say that could mean around or before a workout, during a workout, or after a workout. And the second type of eating is not during one of those times. So it's sort of in an off time. Mm -hmm. If we are in one of those off times, what can you recommend being a very beneficial way for us to eat? Uh, I'm always the adage of understand where your food came from so you can pronounce it and have some protein with it, right? <laughs> yep. So it's not, I mean, a simple answer is know where your food comes from. Can you identify it? How close is it to a cow wanting to eat it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know? Really? You can eat the cow just as long as you know where the cow comes from too. Right. But the simpler, the better. I mean, you have this huge billion dollar industry, the food industry of have this supplement, have this supplement, have this made up stuff. But the fact of the matter is we're not as smart as nature. So we don't actually know how all the cofactors in a whole orange affect our body versus drinking, you know, orange juice because okay. of the fiber content. So, right. Yeah. When we talked years ago, Stacey, you, you said to me that you are a gank saying you can't eat this. You believe yeah. that you can kind of have little bits of everything as long yeah. as it, you know where it's coming from. It's healthy and you eat it within reason. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, that, I have I have this argument with my five-year-old. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> because she goes to school and she has friends who have treat food all the time, like muesli bars or granola bars and, you know, those packaged crackers and, and, and cheese or white bread, peanut butter and jam sandwiches. And she gets upset that she has yucky food for lunch. And I was like, but I'm putting everything you want in there. I'm giving you a almond butter and jam sandwich. But it's not on white bread, mommy. I'm giving her grapes and oranges, but it's not juice money. I want treats. I'm like, but that's not growing food. So if your lunchbox is full of treats, then you don't have growing food. So you have growing, growing food, food and some treats. That's, I like okay. that. That's a cool rule. Growing yeah. food. Nice. Growing food. Yeah. Huh. All right. Let's move to the concept of eating around workouts. So if we are looking at eating uh, before a workout, what can you recommend? What time of day? Oh, well, let's go with your options four times a day before working out. Let's say morning. So we have a morning workout and, and evening. Yeah. Okay. So if you're one of these, um, I don't know if it's lucky or unlucky people that gets up super early and is on the road <laughs> by 5.30 or 6 and you really don't have an appetite and you don't really want to get up at 3.30 to eat a full meal, you just need something small. So you can have um, like some coffee with some sweetened almond milk or, or normal milk in there and half a banana. And that's enough to break the fast, bring your blood sugar up, fuel for the first hour of a workout. And then if you're going to be longer than an hour, you need to think about bringing some food with you. Your recovery is your breakfast, right? You don't have to have something special. Just have your breakfast. Your breakfast okay. is going to have some protein components and carbohydrate. And most of the time during the working week, you're like, oh, I'm really pressed for time. I'm going to eat breakfast really fast. And boom, there you go. It's recovery. Okay. If you're someone who um, does a, a lunchtime workout, right? And you're like, okay, I, I've, I got to get out the door, go swim this water, go for a run. Have a little bit of the um, carbohydrate component of your lunch before you go. So it could be. Um, some crackers or even some cheese and crackers or I would not recommend a banana or fruit because of the fiber content before you go for a run. Yeah. Um, save that <laughs> yeah. for afterwards. Yeah. Um, or even if you want a larger, what they call it down here, morning tea 
at okay. 10, 10.30, so you're having you know, some yogurt and cereal or something or a smoothie, then that will fuel you for your hour lunch or your okay. hour lunchtime workout. And again, have your lunch afterwards, and that can be your recovery food. Um, now, people who go training before dinner, after work, that becomes a little bit more of a, a sticky problem because you're starving at the end of the day because most of the time you're not drinking enough and you're tired towards the end of the day, you're trying to get motivated. So if you're having a small snack at maybe 4 o'clock, something that's hot to drink, green tea or some other kind of hot beverage, can even do coffee because coffee's not a diuretic. To bring your core temperature up, that's going to wake you up. And then have a small semi-meal. So it could be half a sandwich. It could be cheese and crackers and some fruit. It could be a handful of almonds with um, a smoothie of sorts. Yeah. So those are going to fill you up. Um, they're going to fill you up and allow you to fuel yourself for your 6 o'clock workout. Let's, uh, so that's, that's very interesting. That's good information. I'm guessing that based on the length of activity, we may want to either bring that up a little bit or bring that down a little bit as far as the volume of food we're consuming. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. For sure. If you're going to do a two and a half hour race pace ride after work, then you know, you're going to want that snack at four o'clock. Okay. And then you're also going to want something maybe 45 minutes or so before you get on your bike. And then have food in your pocket for that last half of that um, race, as and if that, you were racing. Yeah. And then, the, so now post workout, we're probably going to want a type of recovery meal. What do you yeah. suggest for that? Um, so, like I said, if you're training in around breakfast and lunch time frame, then you just use your meal for that. But if you're okay. doing the whole like race after work and you're not going to get home because you're going to ride home or you have to get in the car and drive home. Then you want to have something that's accessible. And this is where you can look to use um, like protein supplements, protein drink or something like that. Yeah. Or you can have a, a small um, container of non-fat Greek yogurt. And I say non-fat at that time post-exercise because you want the protein to get into the system as quickly as possible. Yep. Um, so, Or even have a peanut butter sandwich before you get home for dinner. Because then you're not okay. starving. And you can make some really wise food choices, but you've also encouraged that recovery process. Awesome. And then the you final You should also question. eat a peanut butter sandwich before going to buy groceries too, right? Yeah. yeah. So you don't need it at the store. That's right. Yeah. 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 And then you're not shopping hungry. That's my biggest problem. Yeah. I know. I know. Uh, so then the final question is, what, what is the, uh, what's the dietary plan while working out or while riding? Oh, real food in your pocket. And okay. I mean, that can be anywhere from if you're doing a long, slow distance ride, you can feel free to pull out that peanut butter and jelly sandwich or you can go for a homemade bar or bananas, whatever. So but growing do, food. Yeah, growing food. Not growing like food. A, a, a protein bar that we picked up from a box. Yeah, that's more like a candy bar. But if you need a okay. Snickers bar or something like that, it's okay. You can have that kind of food on a bike. Okay. Because your body is going to be using it at the time because it's trying to encourage the use of fuel and minimize that cortisol release. Okay. Um, so just let's let's talk, touch on that for one second. When, when I worked with you before, I remember you saying that you could have a Snickers bar on the bike and your entire diet plan is eating, you know, know where your food comes from, eat healthy sources. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I can have a Snickers bar. How does that work? How does that so work? Explain that to us. I know. Because when you look at like a protein bar that you get out of a box versus a Snickers bar, um, okay. actually it's more of a payday bar, not a Snickers bar. Because a payday bar doesn't have high fructose corn syrup in it. Okay. It's pretty much just salty peanuts and sugar. Okay. Um, so the salty peanuts and sugar give you a quick hit of sugar. They give you some protein and some fat to kind of waylay that surge of sugar that you would get from other engineered nutrition. Um, and it is sort of real food, like you have peanuts and things. Um, but if you're looking at the composition of a typical protein bar versus like that payday bar, and you look at the ingredients, there are more undecipherable ingredients in that protein bar than there are in the candy bar. 
Yeah. Okay. It is scary when you look at those labels. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And I, there's this current trend in sports nutrition to start using sugar alcohols like xylitol and mannitol and sorbitol. I'm like, why would you do that? One, they're laxative. Two, if there's any time that you need sugar, it's while you're exercising. Yeah. Yep. I will tell you that I took full advantage of that Snickers bar recommendation when I wrote. <laughs> nice. And there, there were times he when- He was eating cases of Snickers yeah. bars. <laughs> there, there were times I remember some big hard rides where you know, you're three and a half hours in and you just hit a wall and a chocolate chip cookie or a, a Snickers bar- Put you right back in the zone. It's amazing yeah. how much of an effect it can have on your performance. So that that's a great tip. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's talk. We got a few more questions to cover. We're going to ask you one question that we ask every guest, and then we're going to be uh, we're going to make sure you're on time today because I know you probably have about an hour. So, um, but let's let's talk about nutrition problems on the bike. What are some of the most common nutrition problems that you see, and how do you fix them? Oh, bloating and GI distress and the inability to get in the proper break at the end of a race when you need to be there. And it has to do with the fact that you're using typical sport nutrition products. And when you start switching it up and say, hydrate with something that hydrates and eat food that doesn't, is not a strict carbohydrate, people feel better. Their gut problems go away. They have energy towards the end and if they need a quick hit then I'm always like you know use a glucose tablet it's not real food but it's a quick hit of sugar yeah. or you can use like Annie's organic dinosaurs instead of um, hip blocks or something and because huh. there are ways of getting quick hits of sugar without inundating the gut with all of that engineered nutrition okay and are there any basic guidelines that you can give us for what type of fluids we should be consuming? Because you always say fluid in the bottle, nutrition in the pocket, right? Yeah. What are what are some fluid guide? You said eat growing food, but what are some nutri or uh, fluid guidelines you can give us? Uh, just dive into the new niche of the low carbohydrate or yeah, low carbohydrate, higher electrolyte drinks. So you have okay. the SOS, you have the Scratch, you have the Osmo, you have the Moon Performance. So all of those work because they are physiologically um, recognizes functional hydration. I really okay. like Osmo. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get into that in a second. Yeah. But I really, but I really like noon performance. So I recommend noon performance. It's much really? better than Osmo. Much even better. as, even as the owner of Osmo? I am not with Osmo anymore. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Oh, are you with noon now? Yep. I partnered with noon. Um, so, I left Osmo um, on the auspice of we shut the company down, but uh, an old co-founder bought the rights to it and started it back up, and the formula and everything is completely different from whatever I had originally created, so I came uh, back to Osmo. Then I really I like know that. Yes. Yeah. So is your, cause you're now I may be, I may be incorrect, but I believe that your science, your knowledge went into scratch Osmo and is it now in noon? Yep. Yeah. Wow. So okay. I've, I've inadvertently been credited with creating that new nation sport nutrition. Yes. That works it's a big for, load to carry, but I'll take it. Well, I'll tell you what, it works because <laughs> awesome. every every real athlete I talk to uses one of the products that you're mentioning. And, and the SOS guys, I actually meet them in Kona. Um, they have great results as well. So, um, let's talk about here too. Wow. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. they are. That's true. Let's talk about cramping really quick. Um, is cramping related to nutrition and or hydration? And do you know how to help athletes prevent cramping? So cramping is a nuance. It's always going to be some kind of um, like specter in sport nutrition or causes cramping. So it can be a myriad of causes. Um, it can be related to dehydration, but not sodium. It's not a sodium thing. It has to do with reduced blood volume, and so smaller muscles are not getting the blood flow they need that causes a spasm. Um, other aspects is an imbalance between magnesium and calcium because you'll sweat out a lot of, of calcium. Okay. And a lot of times people aren't eating enough magnesium, so you have imbalance of those two. And to start a muscle contraction, you need both. 
So often a quick fix for people who have a lot of cramping during riding is to eat some Tums. That calcium is going to help because your body will hold tightly to magnesium but wow. it really releases calcium. Tums. Yeah. Well, and then our, you have things like, what is it, hot shot, which is a neural confusion. So you're yes. pretty much confusing the nerves so it stops the spasm. Huh. Interesting. Our corporate attorney does this big giant ride every year. It's 206 miles from Logandale, Utah, or Logandale to yeah. Lodija is the name of the race. And he cramps on this hill every year. And every time we talk about it, he asks me for a new piece of advice on how not to cramp. So I'll tell him about Tums. That's a, yeah. that's yep. a good one. Yeah. Um, what about, uh, let's talk about supplements before we close with one final question. Um, so let's, before we get there, but let's talk about supplements. So should we be taking supplements? And if so, what should we be taking? Uh, vitamin D3 be the only one I completely recommend. Okay. Um, and magnesium, if you tend not to eat foods that are high in magnesium. Other than that, no, not unless, I mean, I always tell people get blood tests, see what you're low in. And um, then we come back and we can figure it out from there. Okay, awesome. When you say take vitamin D, how many IU are you talking a day? Uh, so from a performance standpoint, 5,000 IU tends to be the goer for enhancing muscle development. Okay, okay. Per day? Yeah. Okay. All right. We ask every guest this and it has to do, it's called our what point question. And the idea is if you listen to the podcast and you take the advice that you've given us, uh, we want to know how many watts that is worth. So we'll use an athlete who has a 300 watt FTP. Mm -hmm. If they follow a poor nutrition plan versus a good nutrition plan, how many watts will that take off of their FTP? So with a good nutrition plan, they're sitting at 300? Yes. Oh, then I drop them down to about 220. Wow. 80 <laughs> That's points. A big one. Yeah. I think you just broke the record for the biggest watt points. Yeah. I mean, you can 80. try it out. You can try it out. Do a, a very low food intake, and that food that you have in that low food intake is all the processed crap that you can find. And then the next day, I try to do an FTP test. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I think that would be horrible. Yeah, it would be. It, would be. it wow. feels like it feels like trying to race on dead legs after you've had a stomach flu. Oh wow! Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay, all right, Stacy. Um, this has been one of the most interesting podcasts we've ever had. Thank you very much for for us. Um, so, on top of being a nutrition genius, you're also a successful entrepreneur. You now work at noon. How can we learn more about you and the products that you sell? Um, so, gosh, you can look me up at the University of Waikato. Um, you can look me up under Roar, which is the book that I wrote. You can find me on the Dr. Stacy Sims Facebook page. Um, yeah, and as for products that I sell, I don't really sell any. You just, just work for new now. I partnered with them to do education and to help them with a performance line. Awesome. Okay. All right. And tell us about your book, Roar. Roar. So it is because, I mean, everyone for the most part knows that I say women are not small men. And all the seminars <laughs> and stuff that I've been giving over the years and my 20 some odd years in academia and research is all about sex differences. So Celine Yeager um, pitched it to Rodell and we wrote a book about how women should train and eat differently from men to maximize the performance. Awesome. Women that are is great. small men. That's that's the quote of the day for me. I love that. Yep. <laughs> no, it's, it's a great one. Well, thank you so much, Stacey. Enjoy the weather down there in New Zealand and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Stacey. Thanks, guys. All right. Lots take care. Fun. Hey, this is Chris with Flow. When we're not producing this podcast, our team at Flow is designing some of the fastest carbon fiber bicycle wheels in the world. As a thank you for being a listener of our podcast, Faster by Flow, we wanted to offer you 20% off your next purchase of wheels at flowcycling.com. Head over to our website and pick up a set of wheels to make you faster at your next race or ride. Simply use coupon code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, in all uppercase letters when checking out to get 20% off your order. Thanks again for listening to Faster. We hope you enjoy the show. 
Thank you for listening to this episode. Be sure to listen to episode nine, where we interview sports psychology experts, Dr. Simon Marshall and pro triathlete Leslie Patterson to learn how a healthy mind can help you become a faster cyclist. If you enjoyed the show, please help us by sharing our podcast and by leaving a rating or review. If you want to learn more about our company, Flow Cycling, please visit us online at flowcycling.com. That's F as in Frank, L-O-C-Y-C-L-I-N-G.com. You can also find us under Flow Cycling on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, ride safe.